touched on it last week, and I gave just a quick, uh, real general overview of it um, because we had to finish some things in Second Chronicles. Ezra is not a very long book. Um, it's it's fact, actually uh, quite short, uh, just ten chapters, and yet there is a, a lot of... Um, <coughs> Uh, there's a lot of power packed in that punch of a book, if you will, uh, because there's so many things to be learned from. Ezra is more of a, um, he, he approaches things from a priestly perspective. He was instrumental in compiling at least uh, the book of uh, First and Second Chronicles. He, uh, as we'll find today, if we get that far into Nehemiah, you'll find that uh, there were even uh, a strong indication that he, was the one who did the final revision and compiling of Nehemiah and even was instrumental in writing a few portions of Nehemiah. And, uh, but Ezra is dealing with more the spiritual nature of Israel. They're getting to the end of what we call the Babylonian captivity. However, um, the, the Persian Empire has come in and conquered the Babylon, uh, uh, Babylon and has kind of taken over. And so even though we still call it the Babylonian captivity, because that's what they were carried into captivity under, uh, they are actually under the Persian rule at this point. Uh, Cyrus, and uh, you'll find in here in just a little bit, Artaxerxes I, uh, were some of these kings. Uh, Darius was in there in that mix, along with, um, uh, and that would be the time of Daniel and, and those settings. Uh, these were all princes or kings of Persia uh, that ruled during that time. And uh, Ezra is, is during this time. Now, uh, try to follow us a little bit. Uh, there's, it's, it's interesting because the Old Testament uh, is fairly good in the historical books of being chronologically in order. So we have First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. There's a little bit of going forward to give the broad picture and then a little bit of coming back and giving more detailed view. But when we get to this portion, because the narrative of the historical uh, books seem to flow together better, they do it this way. But you'll find that um, the books of Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, and even a little bit of Hosea, depending on where you place it, actually precede or were happened before some of the things that we'll read about here in the book of Ezra. And so our Old Testament is not strictly chronological in its order. But it flows better to see the, the high-level high picture or overview and then to come back and read detailed accounts of certain things under that. And so that's kind of how our Old Testament is laid out uh, in this sense. Um, Ezra is uh, continuing right where First and Second Chronicles ended, which is another reason why we kind of believe that um, Ezra was the one who was very instrumental, uh, if not the one that was fully responsible for composing First and Second Chronicles. There's a seamless um, movement in the narrative from First and Second Chronicles right into the book of Ezra. Um, his main emphasis is to show how God fulfills His promise uh, to His people, uh, even though they have rejected Him over and over again. Uh, understand this: that the history of Israel is very, very closely tied um, to the covenant that God made with Israel. Uh, if you'll remember back, God's, God's conditional covenant was, uh, if you'll obey me and keep my commandments and obey my precepts, then I will bless you. But if you disobey, then I will chasten you. I'll bring uh, destruction to you. And that was the condition of the, the covenant that God made with Israel. 
And so the cycles that we see Israel going through are cycles of God uh, fulfilling uh, the covenant that He made with Israel. When they're obedient, He sends blessings. When they're disobedient, He brings destruction and captivity and uh, chastening. And we find this cycle over and over and over again. And so uh, one of the things that is fascinating to me is how long-suffering God is uh, to continue to have patience with His people and to bring them back to Him again. By the way, even though there has been a period now of about 2,000 years where God has not directly worked with and, and been influential, and although He has done some things to still bless Israel, even during this time, uh, but He's not directly working with them to do His work in this New Testament age that we're living in. He is not done with Israel. And in the end times, He will once again restore Israel to Himself again. And uh, even though they've rejected Him primarily across the board, uh, the vast majority of uh, Jews do not accept Christ as the Messiah. And uh, even though they've rejected Him, He still loves them. And that's just a wonderful picture of who our God is. And even as Gentiles, we can rejoice in the fact that He is a long-suffering God. Aren't we glad He's been patient with us? I mean, if we look back on our lives, uh, there were many times God should have and could have easily given up and said, I'm done with Him. So this book is, again, one of the pictures of God fulfilling His covenant with the children of Israel and uh, to, uh, be, to honor that covenant. Uh, the Babylonian captivity lasts about 70 years. Um, in the process of this, there was um, about 200 years before the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, that, that area, depending on where you place the dates. The prophet Isaiah prophesied, and he even gave the name uh, of the person that was going to send out a decree for the Israelites to return back to Jerusalem. 200 years before, very, very precise. And I said this last week, you know, there are people today that, you know, they, they talk about um, these people that, that foretell the future. And you know, there's a lot of emphasis been on people like Nostradamus. And, and people ask, well, what do you think about this? Some of his prophecies have come true. A lot of them haven't, but some of them have. And isn't that unique? Well, I'd rather take somebody whose prophecies come true every single time. To me, that is the sign of a true prophet. And if they don't, if they don't have a pro, if they have one prophecy, even one that doesn't come true, or doesn't come true fully, then they are a false prophet. They are not of God. Uh, and it's interesting that as we go through the Bible, how often prophecies are given so many, many centuries, even sometimes before the event even happens, and it is so clear and so detailed, and then it happens, and it happens exactly the way that it was prophesied. Uh, people today, when they uh, they talk about people that read their futures and all this stuff that's been going on today. And by the way, uh, let me encourage you to come this coming Wednesday night. We're going to be talking about some issues that I think are very crucial in the day we live, even among God's people. And uh, I say that because we're going to be touching on some issues that even a lot of God's people get involved in that are very, very dangerous things for us to be involved in or to, 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 to have an inclination towards. So I, I didn't mean to pause the lesson to give that. Uh, out there, but if you don't ever come on Wednesday night, I would encourage you to come at least this Wednesday night if you would. And a very important meeting, I think, uh, the teaching that we'll be doing on some things. But, um, you know, even when they do things like trying to foretell a future uh, in the day that we live, it's very general. Have you ever noticed that? They, they, I, I know somebody, uh, even these, these faith healers that are out here in these pulpits, uh, there's somebody out there I, I can't quite tell, and I think maybe this, that's not of God. When God tells us something, when God speaks, He's very clear about it. 
He's clear in his word. He was clear to the prophets. He was clear in their prophecies. He doesn't give vague things and then make us sit here and try to grasp at them and figure them out. And so if you ever see somebody, I don't care if they call themselves a religious preacher or stand in the pulpit of a large church and have a lot of followers, and they're saying, I think God, and I, wait a minute, there, yep, there it is. I, oh, I just lost it. That is not of God. It is not of Him. He's very clear. And so uh, he used Isaiah to prophesy that Cyrus would be the one to give the decree for the... Now, it didn't, they, they didn't immediately go back, but there was a, a period of time, and then Zerubbabel leads the first group of people back to Jerusalem. But when that decree was made, and then you say, what's so important about that? When the decree was made, God told Daniel, in Daniel chapter number 9, verse 25 through 27, I think somewhere in that range, God told Daniel that when that decree comes forth, there will be exactly a certain length of time. He called it 70 weeks. They were prophetic weeks. And uh, that 69 of those would pass before the Messiah would come on the scene. And literally, depending on which calendar you use, but if you use the ancient calendars that they were going by at the time, literally to the day, some people have figured it, of Christ coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and being magnified as the Messiah, that exact date and time was set from the time Cyrus gave the decree. And that was prophesied 200 years before even Cyrus was, was even thought about. Isn't that amazing? I don't need proofs to believe that this book is inerrant and God's Word. But isn't it wonderful when He gives them to us? And exciting to see. Uh, there's no other book out there like it that can do such things and be so accurate and so clear on these things. And so he does this. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally combined in one uh, book. It was called, they gave it the name in the Septuagint of the Second Exodus. Um, and for a number of years they called it that. Uh, it was actually under, I think it was uh, Jerome, I believe, was the one who actually divided the two books and made them separate in the, in the Scriptures. Um, but, uh, but they were originally combined as one book or one narrative. Um, the author is most likely Ezra. Uh, we're, pretty well everybody agrees on that. There are... Uh, a few things that could possibly have been maybe just one of his followers or a contemporary of his that was very close to him. But more than likely, Ezra is uh, the author. Uh, certainly, several passages in Ezra incline itself to that because he speaks in the first person. And so uh, we know that those portions at least were penned by him. And uh, it could be that somebody else helped in compiling all this together. But more than likely, Ezra was the one who did that. Uh, Ezra was a godly man. His, he was characterized by moral integrity. He was characterized by having grief over sin. And by the way, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have a society of God's people that would once again have grief over sin? Uh, we live in a day where we've made sin so so easy yeah, to justify. So uh, we, 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 we coddle it. We, we don't hate it. We don't eschew it. We don't, uh, we don't have a hatred for the sin. And I'm not talking about the people. I'm talking about their acts. And even the acts in our own life. Uh, you say, well, uh, do you hate homosexuals? No, I don't hate them. I hate the sin that they're doing. Very much so, because God does. Well, do you hate people that commit abortion? I don't hate them, but I hate the abortion that they're doing. I hate the wrongness that they're doing. And God's people cannot get the two matters confused. We'll be, we'll be criticized and called hate mongers because of the fact that we hate the sin, because the world will try to group us 
uh, group all that together and say, well, you can't separate the sin from the person, and therefore you must hate the person. The truth is we love the people. We really do. We'd want to do everything we could to help them and to draw them back to Christ. But we've got to hate the sin. And, and Ezra's one of these fellows. And as he deals with the sin of, of Israel, um, you see his heart. We spent some time uh, last week reading uh, the, the prayer of Ezra. Uh, in repentance for his people. And boy, what a powerful, powerful prayer. Probably one of the greatest prayers of confession and repentance and seeking for God to intervene that is given in Scripture, I think, is this prayer that Ezra uh, prays. Uh, he's characterized by his trust in the Lord, and uh, just unshakably so. He was very much involved in the founding of the synagogue, the great synagogue that was the first one. And uh, there was temple worship, and then there was teaching in the synagogue. And he was the one that kind of established the synagogue and the format and how they go about doing that. He was very instrumental in that. <coughs> he, was able, <coughs> excuse me, he was able to bring the books of the Bible that were in existence at the time, which would have been a large portion of our Old Testament. He compiled all those together in what would be known as the first canon of Scripture, uh, Ezra was the one responsible for that and putting those books together and saying these are, are books that are accepted as Scripture. These are uh, books that we use to teach from in our, in our temple and in our synagogue. And um, he was very much instrumental in that. He was a contemporary of Nehemiah. Uh, they were very closely tied together and worked together in many cases. Uh, I've got a lot of history here that will be in the notes. Uh, and I'm not going to go through that because that's, that can be a little bit dry. But the reason I've given it to you is to help you understand the time schedule. So from the time that Cyrus gives the decree to go back to Jerusalem, there's a first return that Zerubbabel, uh, who is the legal king, the last king there um, of Israel, uh, leads a group of about 48,000 Jews out of probably 2 to 3 million at this time. So you see it's just a small remnant that goes back to Jerusalem. I think the reason for that primarily is because of the hardship of the trip. It's over 900 miles away. Uh, when they got there, the city was in ruins. Their enemies were overrunning the city. There was no defense there. Um, and it was just going to be a hard journey, hard, rugged journey. A lot of folks opted not to go. But Zerubbabel leads uh, a group of people down. And uh, a number of years later, um, about 70, excuse me, about 78, 79 years later, Nehemiah gets word uh, that the walls of Jerusalem are still broken. They've not restored the walls of Jerusalem. And so he gets permission from Artaxerxes to go down and to rebuild the walls. That's where Nehemiah comes in. That's kind of the time frame that takes place there. About 70-some years between Zerubbabel and, uh, and Nehemiah's first trip into Jerusalem. Um, of course, Ezra's on the scene around that time period, just shortly after the first trip that Nehemiah took. And uh, reads the book of the law, and we've uh, read a little bit about that in the Old Testament, how that uh, he uh, gets up and reads the book of the law, and the, ch uh, the children of Israel repent in sackcloth and ashes, and they renew and kind of revitalize their commitment to the covenant that God had made with them and said, yes, we're going to follow this covenant. And great revival comes. And even though great revival comes, it was fairly short-lived. And uh, just two years after Ezra's time, the children of Israel and Zerubbabel is still kind of uh, in, in some position of leadership at this point. He, um, he kind of backs off because he gets a lot of opposition. They were working on the temple and it all came to a stop for about uh, a number of years, about 13 years. 
And uh, that's when Haggai comes on the scene. Haggai comes in and says, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So all of this pieces together. I'm trying to help you understand kind of the time frame that happens here. Uh, and so Haggai helps to rebuild the temple. Uh, shortly after that, Nehemiah comes back a second time to Jerusalem, brings about 2,000 people with him on his second visit. And um, when he comes back the second time, he finds that even though there had been great revival under Ezra, that there was uh, a falling away again. And uh, so he uh, restores the observance of the Sabbath. Uh, he uh, reemphasizes the worship in the temple and kind of gets that uh, going again. And he tells the people to put away their heathen wives. Um, we're going to look a little bit about that here in just a few moments here in the book of Ezra. So I just kind of wanted to give you the, the kind of the, the general overview of how all these characters of Scripture, and a lot of them are authors of books in our Bible, uh, time-wise, how they all, all fit together there. So uh, a lot of that will be in your notes, and you can go back through and look at that, and I'll make those available to you. Um, let me talk a little bit about some of the reasons uh, why there is an issue here. Uh, there are two main problems that continuously plague the nation of Israel. And the one is dependent, I think, upon the other. And the two plagues are this. Um, the intermarrying of heathens uh, around them, people that did not believe in God. And secondly, idolatry. And those two things seem to be the downfall each time that Israel gets into a mess. Those are the two things that are the problems. And you can, you can actually trace this, believe it or not, all the way back to Abraham. Uh, when he allowed some of the uh, ungodly folks into his household, they brought idols and uh, Abraham was pretty good about stamping that out often, but there were times that he let some of that slip. And then, of course, Isaac was a little more susceptible to that. By the time Jacob gets around, it's openly and blatantly done in his household, so much so that when he went back to Bethel, he had to call his family together and say, Look, I know you all got idols. Put them away. We're getting ready to go back to Bethel. The idolatry always seems to come... Because they begin to intermarry with heathen wives and heathen husbands. And it seems like the influence of the ungodly are the ones that always bring the righteous people to a place of idolatry and falling away from God. By the way, I think that, that, that principle is taught often throughout Scripture. Um, the Bible tells us that just Lot, who was a just man, uh, he was the nephew of Abraham, it says that uh, just Lot vexed his righteous soul by seeing and hearing from day to day the vileness of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, I was talking to a young person just recently about some decisions they're making, in fact, last week, about some decisions they're making in their life. And uh, one of the decisions is to, to put themselves in a place where a very strong worldly influence will be. And they're a strong Christian at this point, and they, their comment to me was, hey, I'm strong in my faith, that's not going to be an issue. And I said, listen, you need to understand something, and that is this, that any time you're that bombarded by the things of the world, it will always influence you. Now, if you're strong, it may not influence you as much, but it will always influence you. You cannot be around the things of the world and put yourself in that situation in seeing and hearing from day to day 
and not be influenced by it. I don't care how strong you are. And so one of the reasons why God teaches in the New Testament for us to come out from among the world and be separate, and touch not the unclean thing, is because He understands the human nature to gravitate towards these things. Uh, the, the Spirit of God comes to indwell us, and we thank Him for that. He gives us strength. But when we feed, we willingly choose to feed the flesh more than we do feasting upon God's Word and following after the things of the Spirit, we will always be influenced. It's very important that we are careful about our acquaintances and the people that we hang around. Uh, peer pressure is very real, not just for teenagers, but even for adults. Uh, we've got to be so careful of this because the fall of Israel, the issues that even Nehemiah dealt with the second time he returned in that short time of revival and then them falling away, in both Ezra and in Nehemiah, you're going to find that they tell them, listen, you need to get rid of your idols, and when you do, you need to get rid of your heathen wives. Because they're going to cause you to go right back into it again. And we're going to take a little bit of a look at some of this. Let's look in, uh, let's see if I can get to the right place here, because uh, I've, I've kind of skipped around a little bit in my notes this morning. Um, but let's do this. Let's go to uh, Ezra chapter... Um, let's go to Ezra chapter number uh, 10. We're going to start there. And uh, see, see if we can uh, get to some of this. So in Ezra chapter number 10, uh, Ezra has, has gotten up. He's preached to the nation of Israel. In Ezra 9, we find his wonderful prayer of uh, confession. Uh, over the fact that... Uh, let's go back to chapter 9 for just a minute. I want to read a couple verses there, and then we'll move forward. Uh, let's look in the first part of chapter 9. Let's start with verse number 1. Now, when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, notice this phrase, have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations. Do you see the tie there? There was an association with... And then there was an involvement in the practice of their abominations. They, they did not separate themselves from the people. And therefore, uh, it says this, they did not separate themselves from the people of the land, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters, notice this, this is the problem, they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the land of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this, in this trespass. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off my hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. Then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. And then we find in verse 5 and following his prayer, which is a phenomenal prayer. Let's, uh, let's do this. Let's look at verse number 10 of chapter 9 because I want to point out a few things in here. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by thy servants, the prophets, saying, The land unto which ye go to possess it is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands. 
with their abominations which have filled it from one end of the, uh, into another with their uncleanness. Now therefore give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that ye may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Uh, I know we've got mostly adults here today. And this teaching is really, really important for young people to grasp a hold of because they're, they're launching out in life. They're going to, uh, one of these days, be soon looking for a mate and someone to, 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 to love and to have for the rest of their life. And can I, can I point this out, that over and over in Scripture, from the New Testament to the Old, we find the words of warning that God gives about marrying someone or being involved with someone that is not on the same page spiritually as you are. Uh, the Bible calls it being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And I know that that uh, phrase is dealing with more than just marrying, but even in some other areas of life, uh, being yoked to them. But uh, I, I would say this, that even though we want our young people to know this truth, we as God's people as adults need to know this truth. I have been... In years, in the last several years, I have counseled with and heard people talk about and ask questions of me about good, godly Christian people who have lost their spouse, either through death or through divorce. They're wanting to date and they're wanting to, to get involved again with another person. And they think that because they're an adult, they have to uh, make exceptions and to compromise their principles and their standards. And that it's okay. Because they're an adult, they can handle it better than they could have if they were a kid. But the truth is, God is telling His children here who are adults, listen, don't, don't give your children and your sons to them. Don't take their children and their sons. You keep yourself separated from them. Because God knows and understands that they're going to follow after those people. They're going to participate in their abominations. Now notice what He says in verse 12, or verse number 13, I'm sorry. And after all this has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that Thou, our God, hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve, which I think is a wonderful phrase, and hast given us such deliverance as this, should we again break Thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? Wouldst not Thou be angry with us till Thou hast consumed us, so that there would be no remnant nor escaping? O Lord God of Israel, Thou art righteous." For we remain yet escaped, as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespass, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. And Ezra is saying, Lord, I don't know why you've been so long-suffering. We certainly deserve it, because we have, we have uh, associated ourselves. He uses the phrase here, uh, an affinity, with verse number 14. Should we again break that commandments and join an affinity with the people of these abominations? Look what it says in verse 1 of chapter 10 now, and this is what I wanted to bring us to, but I wanted to give you the background of it. Now, when Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. And Sekaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered, and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God, and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives, and such as are born to them, 
according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter belongeth unto thee. We also will be with thee. Be of good courage and do it. Then arose Ezra and made the chief priests and the Levites and all the Israel to swear that they should do according to this word, and they swear. So these folks that had married into these heathen nations said, we're going to put them away by the law, meaning they were going to give them a bill of divorcement and send them back. And verse number 6, the Bible says, Then Ezra rose up before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehoiakim, the son of Eliashib. And when he came thither, he did eat no bread nor drink water, for he mourned because of the trespass of them that had been carried away. And they made proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem unto all the children of the captivity that they should gather themselves together unto Jerusalem. And that whosoever would not come within three days according to the counsel of the princes and the elders, all his substance should be forfeited and himself separated from the congregation of those that had been carried away. And so not only are they separating themselves from the heathens, but they're even going to separate themselves from some of their own brethren who refuse to come back to this thing. Uh, I am appalled in the day we live. I have read and heard and seen things in the last three or four years of my life that just absolutely astound me as a Christian. And that is when a Christian begins to backslide and go into the world and begin to live in sin. And I mean blatant and open sin. Maybe it's adultery. Um, maybe it's some other type of vulgar carnality of their life. And their comment and their excuse for doing so is, I've been unhappy for so long. And other Christians, and this is what appalls me, other Christians that will come to their side and rally around them and say, the important thing is that you're happy. That is not, that is not Bible. The Bible says if there's somebody around, around us or among us, that's fallen like that. The Bible says that we're to restore such an one. Not to condone them. Not to pat them on the back and make them feel good for their sin. Not, not to say, listen, uh, the important thing is that you're happy. As long as you're happy, that's all that matters. No, that's not all that matters. What matters is, is he happy? Is God happy with them? That's what matters. The greatest joy and satisfaction a person can have is when their heart is desiring to make Christ happy. That is the greatest joy. If their sorrow is, is, is in trying to live the Christian life, if there's sorrow in that, if there's grief in that, then we are, we are doing things outwardly without having a love for God inwardly. Because I found this, that the commands of God, when we love Him the way we ought to, are not grievous to us. They're of great, great satisfaction. They're of great liberty. There's a great joy in it. And these folks, they get, they get so entangled with the things of this world and say, well, I, I just love the world better. It's, it just is so much pressure off me. I don't have to abide by all the rules. I'm so much happier now. And then the thing that appalls me so much is other Christians that say, instead of weeping and praying over them and saying, brother, you need to come back to Christ. You need to get things right with Him. They go along and they say, as long as you're happy, that's all that matters. And I don't know how many times I've heard that phrase. That's all that matters. No, it's not. And he said, listen, we're going to call everybody together. People are starting to get things right. And if, you're, they're not a, if they're not willing to come and get these things right, then let them forfeit their things and go with the people of the heathen. Let them go that way. But we're not going to condone it. 
We're not going to pat them on the back and say, as long as you're happy. Look what he says here in verse 13. Then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so must we do. But the people are many, and it is a time of much rain, and we are not able to stand uh, without. Neither is this a work of one day or two, for we are many and have, uh, that have transgressed in this thing. And they're saying, listen, this is a big undertaking. We're going to have a, a major repentance and, and, and coming back to God, and this isn't going to happen in a day or two. And It's going to rain, and there's going to be, this is going to be a difficult thing. Now notice what it says verse 14. Let now our rulers of the congregation stand and let all them which have taken strange wives in our cities come to appointed times and with them the elders of every city and the judges thereof until the fierce wrath of our God for this matter be turned from us. And they said, look, if all these people are coming to get a bill of divorcement, they're going to be, for, they're going to be a long time. This is not going to take place quickly. <clears throat> they said, let's get all these rulers together. Let's do it in, a, in an expeditious way. And let's, let's continue at it and continue to do it until the wrath of God for this matter be turned from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikva, were employed about this matter. And Meshulam and Shebatai, the Levite, helped them. And the children of the captivity did so. And Ezra, the priest, their chief, a certain chief of the fathers of the house of their fathers, and all of them by their names were separated and sat down in the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter, and they made an end with all the men that had taken strange wives by the first day of the first month. There was a separation. They said, not only are we going to separate ourselves from the world, we're going to separate ourselves from others of us that love the world, that won't give it up. And they did. And God was pleased with it. God gave uh, His approval of this. We'll find in the book of Nehemiah when we get there next week that as they do these things, God says, I take pleasure in this. This is something good that the nation of Israel is doing. You say, boy, isn't it harsh? I mean, they're they're divorcing their wives. They're sending them back to their lands. Isn't that harsh? And their children? I mean, this is breaking families apart. But they were unequal families. They were families that these people were... Uh, uh, causing idolatry to come into the nation of Israel. They should have never done it to begin with. And God says, I take pleasure in this. I'm sure He wasn't happy that the situation happened, happened, but He was taking pleasure in the fact that the heart of the people was to do right by Him. And uh, we'll look at that a little bit further as we get into Nehemiah next week because he also addresses the same issue a little bit. And we'll look at some of that as well. But uh, Ezra, an amazing book, amazing book of repentance, confession, uh, coming back to God, saying, God, I want to make sure that I'm right with you. And a lot of things we can learn, a lot of things we can learn from it. And I hope that will be a help to you. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed and be back here in just a few moments. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it. And, Lord, may we learn from it. Uh, what your heart is on the issues and matters. I pray that you would help us to be obedient to it, to be yielded to it, and that your Holy Spirit will do His work in our hearts. Bless the service to come. And, uh, Lord, speak to us, I pray, in a very, near, a very good way that we will be drawn near.